Um, so it's my pleasure, welcome today, um, to bring back to ELAC in Oxford one of our visiting fellows from uh, last uh, academic year, Olav Ofsted, um, who's going to be talking about peace building and conflict analysis, mainly in East Timor, but also drawing on a couple of other experiences and more generally the efforts of the Peace Building Commission. Um, but Olaf's had a very interesting career. He's not just a researcher, although that's what he's doing when he spent his time here. Um, but he's also more generally a, a consultant in the field of conflict management and development and humanitarian assistance. He's trained as a lawyer uh, and worked as a diplomat uh, at Norwegian embassies and uh, NORAD in Pakistan and India, also with UNHCR in Bosnia the Norwegian Refugee Council in Serbia, and with the Red Cross movement in Asia and the Balkans. Um, more recently, he was responsible for the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies, International Disaster Response Law Program in the Asia Pacific. And as I say, his focus today is going to be on peacebuilding failures in East Timor, where he was head of delegation for the IFRC during the 2006 crisis, which he's going to talk about, although he's also going to talk about 1999 as well. And then perhaps we'll get you to talk about your exciting new assignment at the end <laughs> if there's time. But good, so I will turn it over to you to talk about your paper um, and more generally, and then we'll just open it up to discussion in the time that we have. Thank you, Jennifer. Um, I think given the time frame, it may be a little ambitious to um, aim for a discussion that includes my African research. Yeah, yeah. We, can, we can see at the end uh, what, what time we have, but uh, when I realise how little time I have to present uh, these Timor, I, I found that um, I would probably spend all the time doing that. We can see afterwards, but... but uh, at least I'm starting out with, with East Timor. Um, as you may have understood, my interest in conflict management stems from my early life as a legal person, as a lawyer, um, public prosecutor, deputy judge. Um, such positions caught my interest and I took that interest with me when I later sold my law practice and went abroad to do humanitarian work. Doing so, I was lucky to have some very interesting experiences in different parts of the world, and some of these experiences uh, are going to stay with me forever. The East Timor experience is, is, is one such event. Um, even if I was not directly involved in the peace-building process, I was in East Timor from um, October 2003 to May 2006 as Head of Delegation for the International Federation for Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies. And um, I was watching the process from the sideline, not being allowed to get involved because the Red Cross has to be absolutely neutral. Um, I was watching tensions and crises coming and going. At one stage, I evacuated our office uh, because um, it was getting very tense, and these things would come and go and normally pass um, with 
without serious violence. But in 2006, things changed dramatically. This spring, a um, major crisis was developing, and um, no one seemed able to contain it. I was watching with horror what was happening. Things were simply going out of control, and um, I became very curious as to who is doing what here? How is the UN handling this? What tools do they have to handle it? How does it look from the inside? So I decided that one day I wanted to go back and try to, try to find out about it. And that's what I was doing last year during my, my fellowship here. But um, so what I'm um, focusing on, what I have focused on in this research is the conflict management component of the UN operations in East Timor. And with that I mean conflict resolution and reconciliation. Um, and I'm looking at the period from um, 1999 when the UN came there till mid-2006. But the most important time period um, in many ways was the early years, the two first years, and then of course the, the year when the crisis happened. But a question for you, are you all, all familiar with, with the um, East Timor peace building and the collapse that took place in 2006? Some are. Some background, I think. Yeah, some Everyone is, maybe just a little bird's perspective so that we're all in line. The uh, UN peace operations started in 1999 when the Timorese decided in a UN-supported referendum to break loose from Indonesia after 24 years of occupation. Indonesia-friendly militia uh, responded with massive violence and destruction, um, and some 1,400 people were killed, hundreds of women raped, and some 250,000 people fleeing their homes. After withdrawal of the um, Indonesian army and deployment of an international peacekeeping force, the international community decided to make a comprehensive peace and state-building effort. The UN and the World Bank, supported by some 50 international donors, contributed roughly 4 billion US dollars to this effort. And the effort was for the first time in history, to build a new nation from scratch. So this was the UN's challenge. A transition period of two years was planned, meaning East Timor would be independent and take over from May 2002. Although the um, UN stayed longer than foreseen, the operation was widely considered a success for the longest time. In 2006, however, as I've indicated, this was after several reductions of the UN presence and staff, the peacebuilding process collapsed in internal violence. 
The crisis started with uh, a big number of um, soldiers from the Timorese army going on strike. These were mainly from the west of the country, and they claimed that they were being discriminated against. Next, <coughs> to my disbelief, 591 soldiers, meaning 42% of the entire Timorese army, were simply dismissed. Violence followed, where uh, army and police were killing each other, where people from the east and people from the west were attacking and killing each other. Minimum, uh, at least 32 lives were lost, and um, again, uh, a huge amount of people fled their homes, estimatedly 150,000. So, why did this happen? Why did this success story all of a sudden turn into such a dramatic failure? The um, UN Independent Inquiry Commission who came to assess the causes of, of this failure stated that the situation can only be fully understood in, um, historical and, in the historical and cultural context of the country. So, before we look closer at the UN conflict management, let me just take a quick recap or look at the conflict history of East Timor, <coughs> which I think is important. To start with, there were, was probably never a time of peace and stability in East Timor. It seems that from the moment different tribes from different parts of Southeast Asia started developing there, started settling there, they were in conflict. And the stronger ethnic groups would push the weaker ones away from fertile land near the coast towards the more arid mountainous area, meaning also <coughs> eastwards. Um, so they had conflicts of that kind from a very early stage. Um, then came the Portuguese to the island in, 15, in 1513. And after some time, they started colonizing the area. Doing so, they used these differences between the different ethnic groups to split and rule. And according to one of the anthropologists who have spent time studying this, Paulo Sexas, they virtually split the island into east and west, with mid part, the capital Delhi and Manatutu, as what he called a brokerage area between the two parts. During the Portuguese era, there were virtual wars where the Portuguese would engage huge amount of Timorese to fight their countrymen, to call them that, and to crack down on, on um, freedom initiatives. And um, on some occasions, several thousand lives were lost, so it was, was quite dramatic, dramatic, and obviously deepening the, uh, the divide 
among the people of East Timor. Um, then, if, you, if we move a little further ahead and get to the Second World War, we get another element of divide. The Second World War was quite dramatic for the East Timor population. Some 40,000 people were killed. Many of them fought alongside the Australians who were in the island. In the island. But some Leorais or small kingdoms also sided with the Japanese. So you had another version of the split where part of the population sided with the foreign power. Then, if we move one step further, in um, 1975 the scene was again set for dramatic events. We had had the Carnation Revolution in Portugal, which seemed to open up for possible freedom to East Timor. We saw the establishment of the first political parties. And one of them, UDT, staged a coup immediately afterwards. Another party, left-wing ASTD, staged a counter-coup. You had what was called a civil war, with some 3,000 people killed. It lasted only roughly three months. But um, ASDT, who later took the name Fretilin, prevailed and they declared independence. The response from the others, meaning all the other political parties that have been established, and I think there were four others, the response was to go to Indonesia and proclaim integration within, with Indonesia. And what did Indonesia do? Um, they had their own designs and moved in and occupied East Timor. And this was in 1975, and this was the beginning of 24 years of freedom struggle for the people of the island. During these 24 years, there were atrocities on both sides, lots of lives lost, but there were also conflicts between the Timorese. Many Timorese sided all the time with the Indonesians, despite atrocities, despite suppression, despite comprehensive loss of life. And um, there were um, internal political conflicts among the Timorese. Some of them seem to exist still today. There were also violent conflict inside the freedom movement. At some stage, it seems that I think there were some 200 people that were killed. Many also were tortured. Members of, of Fretili including their leader. That's, and um, so it was, it was a, uh, an, another illustration that, that um, we were not talking about a united people. We were talking about a people in conflict with another outside power player, but also a conflict with itself. Together, the Civil War of 75, um, the 24 years of freedom struggle, and the 1999 event caused some roughly 100,000 lives. And 
in my view, clearly rendering East Timor a divided, a deeply divided and traumatized society. Contributing to the divide was also a, a special feature of East Timor, which was about the martial art groups. Um, the martial art groups was um, a phenomenon that had existed for many decades, um, but they came to play a, an active role in the events in 1999 as, um, sorry, in, in 2006. And um, up till then, they um, were known for their gang wars, burning houses, attacking villages, and creating havoc that would, uh, would influence the whole society where they were operating. One study says that as much as, as many as possibly 70% of Timorese men were at some stage affiliated with one of the martial art groups. So it was a major factor in the, in the conflict landscape. So this was a brief history, a brief conflict history. And this, this was, um, you can say, the backdrop when the UN came there in 1999. They faced a traumatized and deeply divided people and a very complex conflict landscape. So, how was this handled? When I was to, to study this, I found that four different aspects seemed interesting to, to look into. <coughs> First, the mandates. What were the UN mandates in terms of conflict management? What plans did they have for conflict management? What conflict analysis did they have? And fourth, what practical, <clears throat> practical conflict management activities did they conduct? So these were the four elements I was looking into. <coughs> I also did a comparison with two later UN operations in Africa to see had things changed after the introduction of the new peacebuilding UN structure of 2006. But um, like I said, uh, I doubt that we will have much time to discuss that here today. But the mandates. The first UN mission was UNAMIT but their role was to hold the referendum, period. So we, we can pass that one. UNTAT was the mission that would take care of the important transition period up to the time when the Timorese would take over. And UNTAT had a comprehensive mandate, including security, law and order, establishment of administration, development of civil and social services, coordination, delivery of humanitarian assistance, <coughs> rehabilitation and development assistance, capacity building for self-government, establishment of conditions for sustainable government. So it was a lot. But, as you would have noted, there was nothing in it on conflict management, nothing um, on conflict resolution or reconciliation. UNMISET 
which followed Untight in uh, when East Timor became independent in 2002, had reduced staff and the mandate limited to assistance to core administrative structure and the provision of um, law enforcement and security. Again, um, nothing on reconciliation, conflict resolution. Then after Enmiset in 2005 came UNOTIL with further reduced staff and um, military personnel only meant for the operation's own security. Its mandate was to support critical state institutions, provide human rights training and monitor the progress. And again, no mentioning of reconciliation or conflict resolution. Then, the next mission was UNMIT, <coughs> which was appointed after the disaster in 2006. And then the mandate changes. The um, opening term reads, to support the government in consolidating stability, enhancing a culture of democratic governance, and facilitating political dialogue among Timorese stakeholders in their efforts to bring about a process of national reconciliation and to foster social cohesion. So, we observe that this came about only after the disaster had happened in 2006. It is hard to say whether it had any practical implication that it wasn't mentioned earlier. As some important conflict management activities were conducted. But my point here is that the need for reconciliation was clearly there just as much in 1999 as it was in 2006. And if the wording of UN mandates have a meaning, it should, in my opinion, clearly have been included from the start. So much for the mandates. If we then turn to the planning, although my focus was conflict management, I was very curious to learn about the overall planning of um, the daunting task of building a new nation from scratch. This is because I've been responsible for a lot of development work and, and plans were always essential to my work. Um, and um, I foresaw that this developing a proper plan for these operations would be a demanding comprehensive task, and I was very curious to see what they had done. However, it turned out to be difficult to find any such plans. After doing all the research I could from my desk myself, I uh, requested help from the library and they tried their best to help me and came back after some time and said, are you sure there is a plan? And I was smiling overbearingly. <laughs> Look here, we're talking about building a new country. You're not, you don't do that without a plan. Um, but I didn't get anywhere, even when they contacted the UN Documentation Centre in Geneva. Nothing um, 
substantive came out of that. And um, I started to become skeptical myself. Um, but then I came across uh, one document that seemed to contain a plan, and that was the Secretary General's, the UN Secretary General's report to the Security Council of October the 4th, 99, which outlined a number of objectives for intent. So I was thinking, ah, oh, that's my plan, even if, if camouflaged as a report. Um, some of the objectives, although they were worded as activities, actually, um, some of these objectives were definitely relevant to reconciliation and, and conflict resolution. I mentioned uh, to develop mechanisms for dialogue at the national and local levels, to undertake confidence building measures and provide support to indigenous processes of reconciliation, to create conditions of stability through the maintenance of peace and security, including through programs for disarmament, demobilization and reintegration as may be necessary. This document, um, 15 pages thing, was quite sketchy on how these conflict management objectives would be reached. And it offered nothing on leadership, very different from other aspects of, of the same planning document, and um, nothing on capacity. But it was at least something, I thought. However, my, my happiness uh, was short-lived. As I got in touch with a um, ex-DPKO, um, head, I was told that, sorry, this is no planning document. Uh-huh. So, next question then, what is? Where is the plan for this operation? I turned every stone that I could think of, um, got in touch with a lot of people, um, and I did find that there were other planning efforts taking place. Um, like when de Mello and Shanana Guzmao met and agreed on the number of priorities. Uh, there were also an initiative from the UN Secretary-General who um, demanded the development of some benchmarks. And according to the UN Secretary-General's Briefing to the Security Council on November 28, 2000, there was a political calendar for the final phase of transition. When I came to East Timor to, to pursue my research, I met, among others, Maria Alcatiri, who had been the Prime Minister since the beginning until the crisis in 2006, and he said, yes, I've seen some kind of a calendar, and that was all. I've never seen a proper plan for peace building or state building. Eventually, I got in touch with Major General Michael Smith, involved in the International Force for East Timor, the early Interfet, who had been um, doing planning work in New York and later developing the military component of Entite in cooperation with the Mello in the field. And uh, 
I got hold of a book that he had written, which I hadn't known about till then, which said that Untait was unable to start its mission with a coherent strategic corporate business plan. Once deployed, the day-to-day problems further hindered the development of such a plan. I had some email exchange with uh, General Smith, and he explained to me that he had even suggested a model for a mission strategic plan, but it met with little enthusiasm because there was simply not any capacity in the mission to do this. So, this means we had a $4 billion state and peace building operation with the humanitarian world jumping up and down, contributing with support and money. And there was no overall plan for the first two years. Quite thought-provoking, but um, that appears to be a fact. Now, what about planning or conflict management, which was my focus after all? The Secretary General's report that I mentioned of October the 4th is, to my understanding, the only planning-related document touching upon reconciliation and conflict resolution. But since this was no planning document, one has to conclude that there was never any substantial plan for reconciliation and for conflict resolution. So, what next? No overall plan, no plan for conflict management. But I thought surely there must be some conflict analysis providing a basis for conflict management activities. To find out about that implied a similar process. I turned all the stones that I could think of, but as you might have guessed, there was no comprehensive conflict analysis either. There was some internal UN reporting that included analysis, but this would be either situational or subject-based. Nothing comprehensive. So the conclusion was that the UN was facing an extremely complex conflict landscape, a traumatized people who had been fighting with one another and the world since the beginning of human life on the island, and there was no analysis of the challenges that this represented. What should have been done in terms of analysis? My opinion is that peace building should always be based on mapping of needs. And conflict management is about one such set of needs. A look at later efforts by other actors, non-UN actors, to <coughs> analyse the conflict landscape in East Timor provide some ideas, I believe, as to what it takes. 
A report of 2004 from the Columbia University called Timor-Leste Conflict Assessment offers a number of valuable insights, but it is brief on historical perspectives and on the divide in the Timorese population, and also on relevant socio-economic factors. A simultaneous report from Columbia University and the Norwegian FAFO Institute provides comprehensive baseline data on socio-economic conditions for development, but does not establish a link or a connection between these and the conflict equations. In 2004, USAID conducted a conflict assessment with a strikingly accurate prediction of some conflict scenarios, but they missed out on ethnic divisions and they termed the Timorese as a generally unified people. So, that report wasn't quite there either. Josh Trinidade and Brian Castro presented in 2007 an analysis with relevant demographic factors. For instance, the apparent connection between young people moving from rural, rural areas in East Timor to the urban centers um, and the fact that that's where, where the violence mainly took place in 2006. And this has to do with uh, statistic um, evidence that, or at least a basis for the suggestion that violence is more likely where you have concentration of young people. An interesting observation. In 2009, James Scambari rendered an incisive analysis of the dynamics of the 2006 conflict, identifying a range of actors and their changing roles, that is particularly interesting, I find, including the gangs and the martial art groups. Pablo Castro Sexas, social anthropologist, analyzed in 2011 a whole range of conflict aspects from the angle of social anthropology, including political conflicts, the East-West conflict, a conflict between the Timorese who stayed and the ones who left, ethno-linguistic divisions, and more. It's, it's a quite interesting and, and um, incisive document. The um, Timorese NGO, SEPAD, together with Interpeace from Geneva, issued a report in 2009 based on hearings countrywide, pointing out a number of obstacles to peace, spanning from the relationship between modern democracy and the traditions of East Timor to corruptions, impunity, and language problems. My point by mentioning all of these analyses <coughs> is that I believe that if we put them together, we begin to understand much better what the conflict landscape of East Timor was about. Conflict landscapes in post-violent settings are, in my view, 
normally too pervasive and too faceted to be analyzed by one or two scholars or experts. I believe an adequate analysis requires expertise in fields like social anthropology, sociology, social psychology, political science, economy, as well as total knowledge of the country's history, culture and traditions. I believe a multidisciplinary team is generally needed. The UN, as of today, is not able to provide something like that. But my suggestion is that outsourcing to scholars, seasoned practitioners, prominent think tank members could be a way of addressing this. I think the resources are out there if, if we start to, um, if, if we get serious about it. Can we assume that a thought of multifaceted conflict analysis would have identified the factors that led to the crisis in East Timor? I don't think we can say so with absolute certainty, but it appears very likely that the UN would have been much better equipped for conflict management had they done this exercise. Let's take a look at the East-West rift in the population. I think the analysis provided by Trinidade Castro and Pablo Seixas, where they point at stereotypes that they were able to identify in the population, this suggests that there were detectable material out there that an analysis should be able to find. Um, myself, I interviewed um, a gentleman named Mario Carascalao, who founded the first political party in East Timor in 1974, and uh, who was the governor of East Timor from 82 to 92. And he surprised me by saying that this is an old social phenomenon. There were always differences. People in the West were better off because the land is more fertile, they have better income, they have higher education, and uh, when they settle in Delhi, they live in different places. So, yes, the differences were always there. What more? We know that the East-West issue caused a critical divide within the army. There was another between the army and the police, and also a conflict within the police on the same grounds. And these were known conflicts. These were known. There was a known fact that these conflicts existed. I would say they should have been detectable. I would also say that the, the rift in the population of the relationship with Indonesia was an obvious factor. And if you started scratching that surface, you would most likely find the connection with the East-West perspective and you would most likely come to identify and understand the perspective, this, this issue that became so important in 2006. I also believe that a profound conflict analysis on the relationship between the various political actors would have been very useful to the UN. 
who in my opinion seem to take too lightly on this aspect. I shall get back to that. A third critical factor, as I mentioned, was the martial arts groups and the gangs and the role they played in 2006. If imagining that James Scambari's analysis had taken place in 1999 and not in 2007, it is my belief that the UN would have got a much better understanding of this problem and the threat it represented. So, um, this given, let's turn to what reconciliation, conflict resolution activities that actually took place. Despite the lack of mandates, analysis and planning for the transition period, UNTAD did conduct a number of important activities. The time frame um, prevents me from going into that in detail, but they did a lot on return of refugees, cross-border dialogue, civic education on constitutional development, free flow of information, um, human rights dissemination, um, dialogue with local leaders in Vikeke about communal violence. There was a range of, of useful activities. UNTAR did also make some efforts to bring political actors together for dialogue. Um, but the value, um, like I've indicated, wasn't obvious, and I will get back to it. But a significant effort was the establishment of the Commission for Reception, Truth and Reconciliation, the CABR. CABR had the combined mandate of investigating reporting on serious crime and facilitating reconciliation between victims and perpetrator of lesser crime. CAVR was active from February 2002 to October 2005. So an interesting question here then is, to what extent did CAVR meet the needs <coughs> of reconciliation? Despite a partly vague mandate, um, CAVR carried out a variety of reconciliation activities. Among them was a series of television broadcast national hearings involving victims and perpetrators, as well as politicians. There were healing workshops, community workshops discussing the impact of the conflict. There was an outreach program for refugees in the West, and an urgent reparation scheme for victims with critical needs. Um, if I've forgotten something, I trust Phyllis will set me right after my presentation. <coughs> but in all, I believe CAVR's work made a real difference for a big number of people in, in East Timor. Otherwise, UNDP, other UN organizations, the Bretton Woods institutions, all contributed. They contributed with institution building, employment for vulnerable groups, community development, poverty reduction, infrastructure and entrepreneurship training, and more. And these efforts might have had indirect positive effects on reconciliation. UNHCR, for its part, was directly involved in the reconciliation process through comprehensive return and reintegration activities. 
However, in my opinion, some reconciliation and conflict resolution efforts were missing. Let me first look at the political context. One senior government representative in East Timor said to me, the political actors should have got together early on and agreed on one objective, one objective only. And I got curious, at what, what could that be? And he said, national unity. That's the main thing missing, national unity. Some efforts were made to induce dialogue between leading political actors, but the Timorese leaders I met generally expressed uh, that this was a largely missing element in the entire approach. Mariel Gattieri, for his part, claimed that the Untaut leadership primarily related to Shanana Guzmao, Ramos Horta, and CNRT, the overall resistance organization, and not to Fretilin, the biggest political party. He believed that an initiative like the Mobisa Dialogue, taken by the Catholic Church in conjunction with President Ramos Horta in 2011, to initiate dialogue between the leaders of CNRT and Fretilin should have been launched early on. The need for national reconciliation. In CAVR's main program component, community reintegration, 1,371 perpetrators of minor crime successfully went through a reconciliation and reintegration process. However, according to CAVR, at least 3,000 additional perpetrators were eligible for this process. This means that less than one-third of the eligible perpetrators, to call them that, were covered. I guess that pre-screening by a public prosecutor which was part of the process, and submission to a court for endorsement afterwards would be a natural limit to CAVR's outreach, as would its duty to report serious crime to the prosecutor and stop the process if serious crime was detected. I guess this in itself can be an interesting basis for a discussion, but for my context here, um, I would like to observe that these limitations given, CBR's recommendations in the report of October 2005 became very important. CBR recommended that their work needed to continue. They recommended the establishment of a new entity for broad-scale reconciliation in the communities and they recommended the pursuit of justice for the victims. As far as I have been able to follow developments, none of this happened. The report from CAVR received little enthusiasm from President Chanana Guzmán, whose reaction apparently, apparently had a chilling effect. Uh, by September 2011, two laws of relevance to this subject, including a law on an institute of memory supposed to be 
the entity implementing the CEVR recommendations were pending in Parliament but facing opposition um, from parliamentarians but also from veterans who think they should be first in line. CEVR's work started only two and a half years into the UNTIPE mission. If an early profound conflict analysis and adequate planning, planning had taken place early on. CABR might have started working early 2000 instead of 2002. If the needs were properly, properly, properly mapped, <coughs> part of the process might have been the national large-scale community-based reconciliation that CAVR later suggested. A possible new entity for broad-scale reconciliation might have had the potential <coughs> of reaching out to the population at large, including Easterners, Westerners, including autonomists and independence proponents. This should, in my opinion, have been a priority in 1999-2000 and not an ignored suggestion, suggestion six years later. Then a few words on the martial art groups. My suggestion is that one should have tried with a special tried to implement a special large-scale program for the large for, for the martial art groups, including reconciliation among them, but also combining it with a structured setup for legal practice of martial arts sports. As it is today, as far as I know, this martial art fights are still happening, and and uh, it's it's um, still a fairly wild activity going on. Chanana um, Guzmao took an initiative in 2005 and had some, um, I think it was 14 groups signing a joint declaration that they would not use violence against themse amongst themselves. Although that is a recommend recommendable <coughs> effort, I believe that earlier and much more comprehensive action, comprehensive action should have been taken to address the martial art group's challenge. Then a few words on monitoring. The need for monitoring of conflicts in East Timor was essential from the beginning and might have been crucial at a later stage. In fairness to the UN operations, the two-year transition period planned in 1999 and the steady reduction of UN operations were not a proper basis for assertive monitoring in 2005 and 2006. When the crisis was brewing in 2006, Security Council members had long been pressing for a conclusion of the East Timor success story. And some Timorese leaders also wished to see the UN leave. So for the SRSG to sit the Timorese leaders down to discuss the crisis would probably have been anything but easy. Still, I think one might question the monitoring. One example, 
The conflict between the police and the army was brewing for quite some time before it became a factor in the 2006 crisis. The media, unlike the UN, kept reporting on conflicts also within the police. The UN operations kept reporting about comprehensive UN support towards the development of the police and the army, but never indicated any effort to address the conflict between them. Not even when army soldiers detained a number of police officers in January 2004 and attacked a police station in December 2004, was there any UN initiative to address this conflict? The Secretary General reported that there is a need to effectively address the strained relationship between the two security forces. But if you read the following reports, it's back to uh, technical support and capacity building, and nothing about possible initiative to address this problem. And as we know, this problem became critical in 2006. In retrospect, um, one might have wished to see the entire agree with the Timorese leader on leaders on, on how to handle the transition period, including a clear joint commitment that if there is a major crisis, we shall sit down together and discuss how we can save the nation. But then you would also need an agreement with local leaders on how to do the transition period, and that was not there from the beginning. Largely, the, my understanding is that the uh, Timorese leaders were not participating much in, in the planning process. I mentioned Dumela's meeting with Chanana uh, Guzmao, but there is little less indicating Timorese participation. But if you were to have um, such an understanding, you, you would also need a sensible time frame. Not a two-year transition period, not one-year mandate at the time for the UN operations. Some Timorese leaders I spoke to said that if there had been an agreement to begin with on five years transition period, and we had agreed on how to do this, this could have worked, and it could have worked much better. I think the um, UN conflict management shortcomings that I have gone through should be seen in the light of New York's approach, the headquarter. The planning task was given to DPKO, which excluded DPA, excluded the World Bank, and as I mentioned, the Timorese. It is perhaps not obvious that a more inclusive approach would have led to better results, but it would have been sound, I think, to draw on all, all good resources, not making it an internal DPKO affair. For the sake of balance, we should note that the UN did a um, comprehensive and in many ways successful job on institution building and security, activities that were better defined and better prepared. However, to sum up, my belief is that 
the East Timor operations should have included the following. There should have been a Security Council mandate, including reconciliation and conflict resolution from the start, not only after the whole thing collapsed in 2006. There should have been a more realistic time frame for the operations. There should have been a comprehensive multidisciplinary conflict analysis. There should have been a better planning process for the transition period, including the reconciliation and conflict resolution aspect. There should have been clearly defined reconciliation objectives and activities, including a national <coughs> reconciliation program, perhaps along the lines suggested by later by CABR. There should have been an early comprehensive dialogue cooperation project for political actors with the purpose of fostering national unity. There should have been a national project for martial arts groups, including reconciliation and conflict resolution. And there should have been an agreement with local leaders on how to do the transition process, including joint robust monitoring and follow-up on conflicts. These are my viewpoints. I'm aware that such suggestions vary a lot subject to who researches and who writes about them. I've seen a lot of, of suggestions. Um, I shall be happy to discuss mine. Uh, these were the points I had on East Timor. Um, I'm happy to discuss um, what I found in Africa, but uh, it's 12 o'clock and we have half an hour, so um, we can uh, take I mean, a break I think there. the interesting question from what you looked at in Africa is, you know, what, we can discuss this, what if anything has addressed some of those shortcomings with the, with the Peace Building Commission, but thank you so much for the, the uh, overview of your research and the, and the list of things to to change. I mean, I had a couple of questions, but I'm going to save them because I'm sure there are others who do as well.